Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 173 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Friday, June, July 10th, 2020. <laughs> I'm Bobby Chesney, I think. Who are you? I think I'm Steve Vladek, and I think you're right about the date, and I think it's episode 173, but honestly, Bobby, I, I you know, it, you could tell me it was, you know, September and... I don't know. I the right. days, you know. The, the Seriously, days are... I looked. I looked at my little notes and saw July, and I, honest to God, had a moment of like, "Is it? It can't is be it July. Can that possibly be right?" And it's also, I mean, you know, because so much of my sort of summer cycle is dictated by the Supreme Court, and so it's odd for me that today is July 10th, and it's just today, the first day in which the Supreme Court is done for the summer. Like that's, you know. That's late. That's latest actually since 1974, um, and just you know, further throwing us all out of our out of our cyclical cyclical patterns. Well, it's uh, it's convenient for us that they did drag it out a little bit because I I imagine we would have punted this week because I, I guess maybe we would have found other things to talk about, maybe some deep dive. But instead, we will have deep dive uh, Trump litigation palooza thanks to the Supreme Court. And, but but also because the Supreme also thanks to the Supreme Court, we're going to talk about. Uh, one of my favorite Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals, Oklahoma. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Yes. That, uh, oh, oh yeah. what a beautiful morning, Bobby. <laughs> um, Surrey with the fringe on top. That's all I got for you. Uh, I'm just a girl who can't say no. I'm. You've already exhausted my knowledge. <laughs> Oklahoma, 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 Oklahoma. Isn't that part of it? So the most... Um, uh, my, my mother-in-law is very, very um, nice, but also has this penchant for saying some awkward things. Um, and so um, relatively early in Karen and my relationship, um, I think I posted on something. On, uh, her mom posted a picture of Karen on Facebook um, from when Karen was uh, Edo Annie in her high school production of, of Oklahoma. Um, and I wrote a comment, something to the effect of, um, it seems entirely fitting to me that Karen was Edo Annie. Like, why am I not surprised that Karen was Edo Annie? To which her mother responded, on Facebook, she's just a girl who can't say no. And I was like, Thanks, Ma. <laughs> so, you know, there's nothing like some inappropriate innuendo from your mother-in-law early, or from your, from your future mother-in-law when you're still relatively early into a new relationship. Does she troll you on Facebook from time to time? Not intentionally. Are you an active Facebooker? Not really. Like I, I have my Facebook, my sort of input into Facebook has really declined over the last couple of years. I still, you know, go to it periodically because it's a relatively efficient way of keeping tabs on friends and seeing what they're up to. But I think I really have my, my frequency of, of contributing content to Facebook, I think is, is radically down. Yeah. I've occasionally will do it. Um, I think the, uh, I don't really do Instagram that much either. I think you probably do more of that than I do. Um, Twitter, unfortunately, I think I'd be happy if I ditched Twitter and just like put out pictures for my friends on, on Instagram. You um, don't understand the power of the dark side. It's seriously give in to your hate, right? Twitter, <laughs> they should have a picture of the emperor on there. It's a scandal. Um, it's an outrage. Uh, but hey, um, uh, maybe TikTok's going to get canceled. I'm just trying to work in as many possible uh, Oklahoma references as I can. I keep doing it. I, I apologize in advance if they slide right past me. No problem. Um, although I will say I, I do, you know, I picked up some Oklahoma knowledge just by virtue of, of loving the, the Watchmen HBO yes, series. Indeed. Uh, um, very, very Tulsa heavy. Kind of yeah, like exactly. the Supreme Court decision that is getting me into my Oklahoma mood. 
Yeah, exactly. So we'll we'll come back to the uh, let's we'll do the Oklahoma case. I think after we've run the traps on yes. Trumpy, uh, we've we've got we've got subpoena decisions, privilege ish decisions, um, sort of. Yeah, let's <laughs> let's let's unpack it all. I think that our main focus today, friends, will be to talk about the the pair of decisions for Mazars and and so the Vance. DA case. Let's pick our terms. Do we want to call it the Vance case or the DA investigation or the New York case? Um, well, because I, I think New York is confusing because Mazars actually is also, there's also a New York case in Mazars. I think we'll use Vance to refer to the one about the New York Manhattan prosecutor DA, a subpoena, the grand right. jury subpoena. Okay, and Mazars okay. is the congressional subpoenas. Great. Great. All right. Well, uh, let's let's dive Mazars. in. And then after we've run the traps on that, we'll talk about their implications for other pending litigation. Indeed. Then we'll, then we'll pivot back to the court. We'll talk about Oklahoma a bit. Um, and then uh, we'll step away from the highest court in the land and, and look towards uh, the possibility of an en banc review of the Flynn case decision, which we reviewed a week or two ago or three. Uh, I think that's it. Am I, I forgetting think- anything? Well, we and, and we'll, we might we might have, we might be frivolous at the end. Yeah, we are. There's a there's a good chance of that. Very good chance of that. All right. Um, well, hang with us until the frivolity, um, or just jump to the end. Should we just jump to the end? We might. <laughs> um, all right. Focus. The Supreme Court has resoundingly rejected the most terrifying position staked out by Trump, which was the idea of temporary but absolute immunity from criminal process. For me, the, the most important thing is the clear rejection. And I, I think not surprising, but very glad to see it. Um, and then everything else, there's lots of important stuff beyond that. But in theory, that could have gone the other way. And that would have been a uh, signal moment in our, in our history as a country. That's been, I think it's fair to say that's been resoundingly rejected. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think, I, th- I mean, I think, yes. I, I think the, 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 the most conclusive thing that happened in the pair of decisions yesterday was two different sweeping majorities, arguably Bobby, even almost, I think, I think really all nine justices in advance, um, you know, poo-pooing the argument that had been advanced by Trump's personal lawyers um, about the president's categorical if temporary immunity from this kind of process. You know, I think that was the, always the lowest hanging fruit in these cases. And so I'm, I'm not surprised that that was emphatically rejected, although I am relieved it was emphatically right. rejected. Um, it gets, I, I think once we get past that, it gets tricky, right, to try to figure sure. out exactly who won and who lost. But yes, I mean, I think there's no question that the arguments that were pitched most radically by Trump's personal lawyers met with very, very little sympathy yesterday. Yeah. Um, you know, I think in the Vance case, none of the justices endorsed them. And in Mazars, I think, you know, at best, Justice Thomas sort of lukewarmingly, if that's the word, um, you know, nodded toward them in his dissent, but actually was, I think, much more on board with the arguments offered by the Solicitor General as amicus. So should we do uh, uh, the Vance New York case, uh, the Vance DA case, grand jury case first, yeah. and then pivot over to the, there's a, there's a lot more to say, I think, ultimately about the congressional case. I think that's right. And I think also the, the, the Mazar's opinion is a little more complicated. Um, okay. so, so starting with Vance, and also that's the order in which they came out. So Vance came down um, second after Oklahoma yesterday. Um, and 
to make a long story short, a seven to two majority. So Chief Justice Roberts, um, both of Trump's appointees, so Justice uh, Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh, and the four more progressive justices um, held basically that the arguments Trump had offered against the New York grand jury subpoena were all meritless. Um, so he does not have categorical immunity. Article two does not preclude uh, a subpoena like this. And I think, Bobby, most importantly, um, the fact that this is in a state court is not a problem, right? That, you know, the, 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 the court basically answered the question it had reserved in Clinton versus Jones right. um, by saying, you know, so what if it's a state court? Like, that's not an independent obstacle to this kind of relief. Um, yeah, good, good, solid victories all around. Predictable, yeah. but important victories all around for the rule of law right there. Completely agree. Um, the tricky part and where I think a lot of media out, I mean, one of, one of the sort of the inside baseball story that I want to spend a couple minutes on once we've gotten all the way through the summary is how the reporting of these decisions was really awkward. Um, so the tricky part is the chief justice at the end of his opinion in Vance says that doesn't mean these cases are over. Right. Because he says the president might still have more specific objections to the subpoena and or some of the specific documents being requested. And he's entitled to litigate those more specific objections on remand. So it was a weird but not unheard of mandate of affirmed and remanded. Right. Usually you you don't usually see that, but it's not unheard of um, where the court's saying we agree with the lower courts, but there's still more to do. And so that's why, you know, a lot of the early headlines that were like, Vance will get documents, right? Um, I think that's probably right, Bobby, but it's not going to be tomorrow. Right. You're saying it's probably right because as a predictive matter, it's unlikely that except in maybe a couple of curious rifle shot sort of document ways that in the end, any of these more specific objections are likely to be upheld over time. But... Got to litigate it. And, that, and, that, and, and this is the thing, right? So, so what are the objections? I mean, let's, Bobby, let's, let's spend a minute talking about like what, what, what Trump could still argue, right? So um, he can argue that the subpoena is overbroad, but one of the things the Supreme Court held yesterday is that there's no extra specificity requirement in this context, right? And so they'd have so to be ordinary have analysis. To overbroad under ordinary analysis, which I think is a stretch. Um, the, the president could argue that the subpoenas are interfering with his ability to discharge his duties. Um, Bobby, that argument's a loser because the subpoenas aren't directed to him, right? Like he well, is not. I, so I feel like, you know, kind of sounding the briar note here, like that there could be spillover impacts on it. It's not impactless on him. I think it's not a very good argument, but yeah. I also feel like yeah. that argument is sort of, that, that argument would be quite in tension with the rejection of his overarching position here. Agreed. I mean, if he can't make a highly specific claim, I, I, I have trouble seeing how he could distinguish that from the the, the substance of the claim he's already making that just lost. This is why I think these are losers. Um, yeah. And then last, what, what about an attorney-client privilege argument? Well, so, from that's, wait, so that's where I was going. So, so the last the last category is common law or constitutional privileges, right? That that some of the materials are protected from disclosure by privilege. Now, I think the executive privilege claims are just patently meritless because almost all of this stuff is not. For one of yeah, private business, yeah, right. it's all private, or at least it should um, be. Attorney-client privilege, Bobby, is a little trickier, but you know these are financial documents in the possession of non-attorney third parties, right? And so I think, like, I don't know the New York law on attorney-client privilege, but I suspect it's pretty um, skeptical of the privilege extending to financial documents held by a financial institution. 
Yeah, no. So having once having, I'm a, I think I've mentioned this in the show before. I'm a retired New York lawyer <laughs> and I practiced there and, um, I worked for a large New York firm. We, we had clients for whom these kinds of questions might arise. <laughs> I am reasonably confident that, uh, except in highly specific, not typical of most documents you would expect to be at issue here. Uh, it would have to be a situation in which there was um, <laughs> some kind of litigation context in which a firm had retained, um, you know, there was some kind of attorney client direct involvement that was kind of specific. And even then, you know, the, the courts are, are wary about gamesmanship that's designed to put the cloak of attorney client privilege around um, what presumably in this case are mostly just uh, regular business practice accounting type documents and financial records. So yeah, no, I, I think they can maybe find a few few things in the file that maybe actually raise a real issue, some sort of work product issue maybe. Um, but I don't expect it to work as, as a whole. And most importantly, there'd be nothing novel or out of the ordinary about this. These are the sorts of issues right. that arise with these kinds of investigations in this office, in those courts, in the Southern districts all the time. That's right. I, I think that the tricky part, Bobby, is I don't think he's going to win on almost any of these claims, but I also don't think that at least all of them are frivolous. And so, you know, the notion that this is going to happen overnight, I think, is just belied by, you know, the, the flow of litigation in this context. So, right. you know, Trump goes back to either the state court or the, or, the, or the federal district court, and he says, I want a TRO or an injunction against the subpoena while I litigate these, you know, remaining claims, right? that's going to take some time. And so I think, you know, it's right that the grand jury is eventually going to get most of what it has subpoenaed. The question is just whether one, that's going to be before the election, and two, whether there's any way that information is going to come out given New York state grand jury secrecy rules. Right. And I'd say no and no, except on the latter one, eventually, if and when there's prosecutions, then when yep. stuff gets offered into evidence. But that's a long way down the road, no matter what. Um, so for anyone, I think for maybe non-lawyers who maybe understandably look at this just through the uh, sort of the downstream, what's the effect on politics and on Trump lens, then yeah, I'm sure they're dissatisfied. But I don't think any of us who were looking at this through a legal lens thought there was any, any chance that something was going to happen here that would have in any short-term way bubbled up into the public's view. So I think that was right in Vance. I, I, I have a slightly different take on Mazar's and, and, and I'm a little more circumspect about, you know, I'm, I'm generally almost fully on board with the chief's opinion in Vance. I have a little more concern about his opinion in Mazar's and we'll get to that in a second. Um, yeah. But I, just, I, I think, it's, but, but back to sort of the, the battle of the headlines, right? I mean, I think it is absolutely right that Trump lost Vance. But the question, Bobby, and I tried to put this question on Twitter yesterday, is what is a win, right? Is a win um, a ruling that eventually the grand jury will get these documents and the fact that Trump is currently the president is not some kind of shield from that? Or is a win that the public will have access to this information before the election? And if, if your definition of a win is the latter, then there are ways in which Trump actually won, right? Because the, the court, you know, the the sort of nod at the end of Roberts's opinion in advance to the continuing litigation in the lower courts is basically a roadmap to Trump's lawyers, you know, and an invitation to them to try to really drag this out past November. Um, but, but so I, I agree. I agree with that descriptively that if, if someone defined, if anyone is defining when as just, do I get to see the documents? 
then then no, um, Trump wins on that dimension insofar as his immediate need is to get past the election without these documents coming out. But of course, you won't be surprised when you hear me say that I don't think that's an appropriate measure yeah. uh, from the court's perspective uh, of what is going on here or how it should be resolved. Or and, and, that and, should enter into the analysis. Uh, and, that's why, and that's why I think it was seven to two. But, but just the, the last thing I'll say, there's one critical thing to keep in mind and why in some ways Vance's was always going to be a harder case for Trump to win, right? Is separate from the legal arguments. Um, the grand jury of the Manhattan grand jury, Bobby, is a standing body, right? You know, right. Cy Vance isn't going anywhere. Right. Whereas, exactly. that, that, that request doesn't die at the on January 3rd. Congress's term. Right. Whereas the congressional, whereas in the congressional context, there's always this running clock because congressional subpoenas expire. Now, I guess on, so in, maybe we can pivot over to the much more interesting uh, congressional subpoena decision. And, and here, you know, let's, as you say, put the, the, downstream political and policy impact out yeah. front because that's what's you know some people actually care about just what does it mean what's the consequence yeah. um clearly the actually i wouldn't say clearly the clock's gonna run in the sense that there's nothing that will happen between now and when the current congress's session expires and this congress expires and therefore the subpoena expires they can run the traps to some extent maybe even maybe even a substantial extent if they get a cooperative court but they can't run them all the way. There's no way it'll get done in time. It just won't happen. They can reissue the subpoena as a first act of the next House of Representatives, which I have no doubt will be still a Democrat House of Representatives. I don't think anyone thinks it's going to flip to Republicans. So eventually, it won't be before this election is concluded, but eventually I think we will see the traps fully run yeah. on this. And I think it's very important to, to vindicate the principle that's articulated in the the Mazar's decision for the congressional subpoenas to actually then fully execute the steps that Roberts has laid out. So, so I think, I, so, so, so let me, I, I, I have a long response to that and it might help if I take a step back and sort of start by pitching this in terms of what Roberts actually said, right? So that's true. We should, we should actually tell people what he said. You can't assume everybody read it. Because I, because I think you're right, but I think it's a little more complicated. So, um, so Mazar's right. Mazar's is actually two different cases consolidated. It's, it's, it's the, um, I think what it's three different subpoenas, right? It's the, it's the oversight and reform committees subpoena to Mazar's in DC right. And it's the Financial Services Committee and HIPSI's subpoenas to uh, Deutsche Bank and Capital One in New York. And um, you know, let's spell that out a bit because I think it's very relevant to understanding yes. what will and won't happen next, yes. right? So the, the, the HIPSI, that's the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. So it's got an investigation that's about Russian interference in the election. Yep. I, I think that everyone agrees that that's probably got the, you know, the, the, the strongest claim to legitimacy in terms of why you're in terms of why you're subpoenaing these records. Yeah. What's the legitimate congressional role? Right. Is it really in play here? Are these records obviously going to be relevant to it? I think that's a, such a no brainer. And then you've got the, um, the, the oversight uh, committee, which I think has a reasonably uh, still strong nexus yep. there. Yep. And then I think most people who are commenting on this, agree that relatively speaking, it's the Financial Services Committee's investigation, their Sabina, where the, the gravamen of the critique is that you could argue that the records they're seeking are relevant, but there's a decent argument at least that they're relevant only in the sense that they're illustrative of right. an area that might lead to legislation. And it's not necessarily strongly 
Trump specific, if you will. Right. So, so, so to add to add one to add one layer to that, right? I mean, so so the Financial Services Committee subpoena is justified on the ground that the committee is trying to investigate whether it should require all candidates for federal office to disclose their tax returns, right? And in that context, it certainly looks it, it certainly looks a little fishy that they only subpoenaed one candidate for federal offices, ta- you know, that, right? Like, you know, we're, we're using Trump as an example of a phenomenon that really there are literally thousands of potential other examples for. So it's easier to critique that as maybe pretextual, maybe right. it's more versus versus specific investigations into potential misconduct involving Trump directly. Exactly. Okay, so that's the those are the three different things. Yeah. What right. so 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 um, the the Chief Justice's opinion, which again is basically for a seven to two court, um, basically says that um, everybody's getting this wrong. <laughs> Um, that the lower courts did not give adequate um, weight to the separation of powers concerns, basically to the potential for um, undue interference with the president's Article Two privileges and immunities, um, and that the president and his and the Justice Department aren't giving adequate weight or support to Congress's legitimate investigative authority and responsibility. And so, if we can remove Trump from the story for a second. It's actually a really elegant um, sort of, uh, what, what's what I'm looking for? It's a really elegant separation of powers opinion, Bobby, about inner branch dynamics, um, mm-hmm. right? Where I think the chief justice has done, again, separating this from Trump, a really nice job, not necessarily the job I would have done, but a really nice job of explaining what everyone's interests are from his perspective and why you can't have an answer that allows for the scale to tip too heavily in one direction. Right. And thus and, it follows, and, it follows necessarily that the, the Trumpian position of Congress simply can't investigate him, of course is wrong. Well, but, but it's, um, but it's important in that respect, right? That one of the things that I think implicitly is rejected by the chief's opinion is judge Rao's dissent from the panel opinion in the DC circuit, which said outside the context of impeachment, Congress cannot issue subpoenas like this. You know, I don't think the chief justice ever goes after that, that position directly, but I think it dies in his opinion. Indeed. I would say that it, it, it's the indirectness is, is almost aggravating the critique, if you will. That is that position is so ridiculous. Yes. That the court did not think it necessary to even articulate it and debunk right. it. It's just necessarily uh, rejected by what the court did say. But also, I mean, but but if I can, if I can just sort of, if I can just sort of go a little bit deeper into the into the con law nerdy weeds, right? I mean, it's a deeply Bobby functionalist opinion, right? Because the chief is saying there are no bright lines when it comes to these kinds of inner branch subpoena disputes. And so that has two huge consequences. One, it means that there's going to be a lot of play in the joints in individual cases. And the chief actually spends some time outlining what he says are the four factors that he thinks court should look to in resolving these kinds of cases. But Bobby, too, and I think this is the most important takeaway. The courts are going to be the ones, right, to apply those factors and resolve these disputes. I mean, it is an incredibly... Um, judicial it, it is it is an opinion just awash in judicial confidence that that it is not only appropriate but necessary for the federal courts to be the referee in 
interbranch subpoena disputes between Congress and the president, applying factors the federal courts themselves have articulated. It's a uh, it's our reluctant duty. It shall be yes. our reluctant duty yes. to police this line. Well, but but in I, that, I, I and, my I'm students, as, I, as I'm sure you do, that you can rarely go wrong in close cases by figuring out well what would be a result that that prioritizes the court in that analysis. <laughs> that is that is a safe place to go. I, I find it unsurprising, although I know that a lot of the commentary has been that uh, you know what, look at the court aggrandizing itself. And to that, I think uh, gambling in Casablanca. So, so I don't, I, I mean, you, you will be shocked to hear that I don't think it's aggrandizement at all, right? I mean, I, 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 it, is, it is my favorite part of the chief's opinion is the, what you might call the judicial maximalism um, at the heart of it. But I think what's also critical about that is I believe, although I am not, I am not necessarily um, speaking for a consensus on this point, I believe that that analysis also puts to bed the D.C. Circuit panel opinion in the Don McGahn case, where Judge Griffith had written for the panel majority that interbranch disputes over congressional subpoenas are not justiciable. That's right. Um, now, it's, it's worth stressing that this case was factually different from that one. In the McGahn case, the House was the plaintiff suing to enforce one of its subpoenas, whereas here... Trump is a third-party defendant, right, suing to block a subpoena. Um, but Bobby, I don't think that that's a distinction worth a difference here. Like, I think the right. I think I think the chief has said one. Um, these are disputes that courts, right? One. These are disputes that Congress will win sometimes, right? And then two. We, the courts, will decide which ones Congress wins and which one Congress loses. If you again, if you remove Trump from the equation, that is an enormously significant and Bobby, to me, correct um, constitutional law separation of powers holding. I completely agree. Um, I won't even belabor the point. I, I agree with all you just said. Okay, so then we get to the tricky part of Trump. So then the question is, um, why didn't right at least the Hipsy subpoena and maybe the oversight subpoena? satisfy the chief's test, right? Like that is to say, you know, there I think there's room for criticism because I think there's a pretty good case to be made that the court, one, could have and two, should have, right? Um, then taken up the, the responsibility of actually applying its test to the relevant subpoenas as opposed to sending it back down to have this all, you know, go back through the same process again. So let's name the, let's name the elements and yes. then let's wrestle with that. Uh, well, now I have to pull up the opinion to, yeah, to name right, all the elements. Yeah. Um, so, all right, let me pull up the elements. Do, 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 do. See, this is this. I knew you were gonna you were gonna call on me and, and ask me to actually cite my sources. <laughs> um, okay, so the elements. Da, 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 da. Um, first, court should carefully assess whether the asserted legislative purpose warrants the significant step of involving the president and his papers. So on that one, that's where I think the distinction to which, Bobby, you already adverted, right, between the sort of direct Trumpian implications of the HIPSI and oversight investigations versus the sort of, you know, using Trump as an example of the financial services investigation, that, that seems to be a sort, that, that seems to be sorting those out already, right? That, you know, two of the subpoenas, I think, meet that test, one arguably doesn't. Right. Um, Just to dwell on the point, there's there's sort of a doctrinal con law weed sort of interesting question here. Like, well, what's the standard of review in assessing? Yeah. Obviously, Congress thinks that standard is met by by dint of having taken the action. Are courts looking at this de novo? Is it a you know 
don't over, don't reject this element being met unless it's you know on its face arbitrary and capricious, etc. Yeah. What what are the doctrinal metrics of when it's good enough, or is it just I don't know? Court, what do you think? What do you think? Right. Um, uh, so so I actually I, I should say I have no problem with the first factor. Like I do think this is a meaningful change to what had been the law before yesterday. Um, right. That I think you know barring um, right. barring subpoenas where the president is not the direct, like barring subpoenas where the president's just one of a group, right? I think is, is a reform I can live with. Uh, yeah, but it, I, I actually agree with that. I think that's actually a salutary, it reflects the fact that it, it's hard to spot it for some people because, it, because of Trump's presence and the fact pattern yes. and the insanity of the positions Trump's lawyers took. But in fact, the president does have interest here. Right, can, I, mean, imagine, I, mean, I mean, Bobby, imagine, imagine if during the Obama administration, Congress had been considering legislation to require all candidates for federal office to provide their birth certificates, right? And in the process, they subpoenaed Obama's birth certificate. Like, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I would have felt so cool about that. So um, it's an interesting hypo because we can use it too with maybe these other factors. Okay. So second factor, to narrow the scope of possible conflict between the branches, court should insist on a subpoena no broader than reasonably necessary to support Congress's legislative objective. So... Here, I think the um, financial services subpoena has real problems, right? Because the subpoena seems clearly overbroad to that purpose. Because um, the subpoena is not just seeking tax returns, right? It was seeking additional documents and materials, right? Um, but Bobby, again, I think the HIPSI subpoena is pretty well tailored. I mean, the, you know, if you're investigating potential Russian interference in the election, and you want to ascertain whether one of the two candidates in the election had significant financial contacts with the Russian government or Russian private entities. Right. Yeah, you don't have to be a case officer to appreciate the relevance of that. That's Exactly. All right. right. Third, court should be attentive to the nature of the evidence offered by Congress to establish that a subpoena advances a valid legislative purpose. The more detailed and substantial, the better. Again, I can live with that right? Um, that is particularly true when Congress contemplates legislation that raises sensitive constitutional issues, such as legislation concerning the presidency. Here again, the HIPSI subpoena was not in contemplation of legislation. It was in contemplation of a counterintelligence investigation. And so I think Congress would easily meet that bar, right? And then fourth, court should assess the burdens imposed on the president by a subpoena, particularly because they stem from a rival political branch has an ongoing relationship with the president and incentives to use subpoenas for institutional advantage. So here, right, the subpoena is not to the president. (laughs) And so, you know, I don't, I don't dispute that there are some burdens, but they're certainly not the same burdens you would see if the subpoena were to the president himself. And so my frustration with the opinion, Bobby, is that after walking through all of this, it seemed to me it would have been very easy for the court to say, we're not sure about the other subpoenas, but at least the HIPSI subpoena meets this test. And they have to know that by not doing that and by vacating the DC and Second Circuit decisions and remanding them, they're you know, going to make it very difficult to have this matter conclusively resolved before those subpoenas expire on January 3rd. So let's talk through, let's kind of game this out and imagine exactly how long it could reasonably be expected to take. It goes back, 
There's some, there's some number of days before the mandate actually issues, right? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, this is now we're getting super nerdy. Um, yeah, let's nerd out on this. So believe it or not, it's actually, this is a common misconception about, about the Supreme Court. When the case comes from a lower federal court, Bobby, there's actually no mandate. Um, mm, mandates okay. are just to state courts because the Supreme Court doesn't have the same supervisory authority over state courts that it does over federal courts. So under Rule 45.3, um, of the of the Supreme Court's rules, there's no mandate, right? The clerk will send the clerk of the lower court a copy of the opinion or order of the court and a certified copy of the judgment, usually 25 days after the entry of judgment, Bobby, unless there's a petition for rehearing in the interim. Um, and I don't I don't expect Trump's lawyers to to, to file a petition for rehearing. <laughs> you know, I put nothing past them, but that would be such a bald-faced attempt to extend yep. the clock a little bit. They Although, do you, do you know who, it's not quite worth it. Do you, know, do you know the name of the lawyer who was the last one to successfully get a petition for rehearing in the Supreme Court granted? Uh, well, it was Boumediene, wasn't it? Nope. Hmm, was it Vladek? It was Vladek. <laughs> Oh, so maybe they can uh, summon you to advise them on it. Uh, yeah, well, well, here's in, in, in the story of no good deed goes unpunished, right? So after Ortiz, this is how I ended up with Briggs, the case that's now back in the Supreme Court, because after Ortiz, the Supreme, we, we had a petition, we, we basically said to the Supreme Court, you should still GVR, grant vacate and remand one of the Ortiz trailers because of this new law, this new decision that came up. And they didn't at first, then we petitioned for rehearing and they did. And on remand, we won, and now we're back in the Supreme Court. So no good deed goes on. Hilarious. All right. Well, so, okay, so, okay, so it's going to be within 25 days. It goes back to the, the, so the second and the D.C. circuits get these cases back. Now, and then they have to further do a process to remand downward to the district courts. So that's up to them. I mean, if I, you know, they can pre-dermit it themselves, right? They can yes. take the step you just decided. Yeah. Just so, so I think the original, it goes back to the same panels. And so I think the original three judge panels in both of those cases could plausibly um, just take the Supreme Court's direction and then issue a new opinion in which they go, they rule up or down on the subpoenas. But okay, let's imagine, let's imagine that both circuit panels are basically inclined to at least say, look, we're not remanding further as to Hipsy's subpoena. Right. We might remand as to the others, but not that one. Um, realistically, that, that can't even begin to be on deck for them until early August or mid-August. Um, how quickly could you expect a panel opinion out of this? And would it be no briefing, no argument? I mean, they have to take briefing. It wouldn't, I mean, they, you can't, you can't, you can't um, deny the president a chance to brief this case, right? So even so if they do that on any kind of expedited timeline, we're talking about into end of September October. for, I would say end of September for panel opinions. But then the question is whether the president would try to sort of drag it out by going on bonk. Right, exactly. Well, but, or, if you're in October, why not? Or, right. And then, and so uh, this all ends up in the same place, Bobby, which is presumably at some point, the president's going to have to go back to the Supreme Court for a stay, right? And, and I think the real question is whether John Roberts will be a fifth vote. You know, well, he'll be the fifth vote, I think, one way or the other. But will he be the fifth vote to stay a D.C. Circuit and or Second Circuit decision applying his majority opinion to affirm the HIPSI subpoena and the financial services subpoena, um, sorry, and the oversight subpoena? Um, or will he be a fifth vote to um, refuse a stay, at which point the subpoenas would be enforceable even if the cert petition was pending? Like, in other words, I think this is all going to rise and fall 
on a Trump stay application in September or October where John Roberts is going to be the deciding vote. Here's, here's how I anticipate it going down. This notice none of this works at all if the panel decides to slow roll things, True. you know, at the circuit level, or to or the the sort of I wouldn't say cowardly way out, but certainly the uh, the way to kick the can to somebody else would be to just take the whole thing at the circuit level and just remand to the district judge to figure out what to do next, which will have the effect of slowing it down another cycle. Yep. Um, but if we imagine we get panel decisions on October 1st, which would be really quick, and they'd have to be pretty aggressive to get it done that way. Yep. Either one of them do, does it by October 1st. Um, there will, and, and there's not a stay from the panel while yep. you know, the anticipated en banc or yep. Supreme Court requests go forward. Um, there could be an, a request for stay while the en banc request, yep. a request for stay from the en banc court. And I'm not sure you can tell me, I'm sure, how that would get resolved. Who? Does the en banc court have to vote to decide whether to stay pending, or does is, is there some mechanism where one uh, active judge of the circuit can stay it? While no, no. So, so, so if it, it's think of a stay, Bobby, like a, like an appeal, right? Where your options are the panel, the en banc court, or the Supreme Court, right? So, so if the panel says so no the panel stay, won't do it. No if stay. the panel says no stay. You could ask the on bonk court for a stay, but usually only if you're also seeking rehearing on bonk. If you right. right, you wouldn't ask the on bonk court for a stay just to file right. a certificate. But why not do that if your game actually is yeah. just delay? Because you know you're probably going to lose on the yep. merits once it's resolved. Yep. So start with the on bonk petition with yep. coupled with an on bonk request for stay. Yep. That stay thing kind of gums it up. Then the on bonk thing gums it up. Yep. And then if on bonk is somehow quickly denied and the stay is not given, then you repeat cycle at the Supreme Court. Yep. Uh, if that can get it within a few weeks of the election, I can really well imagine that Roberts, who would be, I think, very inclined to actually on the merits uh, affirm a determination, especially the Hipsy subpoena is legitimate, nonetheless would support the stay so that right. the court is not in the position of appearing to you know drive the result or change the status quo within two or three weeks of the election. I mean, there, I mean there's already, the court has a, a, a whole body of law that Rick Hassan, um calls the Purcell principle that drives similar decision-making in election-related cases that they won't, the court generally errs on the side of whatever preserves the status quo on the yeah. eve of an election. That's and so, you know, that all of this is why I think one, this is going to end up back in John Roberts's, you know, on his desk one way or the other sometime this fall. And two, whether this Congress ever gets to honor these subpoenas is going to almost certainly depend on how he votes on that stay application at that point in time. So given that there's only a few weeks play to shift this from a fact pattern where it's sort of a Bush v. Gore kind of feeling yeah. like oh, this could affect things to just three weeks later, it's post-election. I predict that somehow or other, the, the pace of developments at the lower court, the circuit level, if yeah. not the district court, first of all, if it goes all the way down to the district court, because that's what the circuits do, I think it's, it's off of the Supreme Court's pre-election plate altogether. Oh, for sure. Uh, if it stays at the circuit level, I think nonetheless, I predict that it just won't quite get there by the election. I, I think that's right. But also, I, I predict that John Roberts will be really hoping that that is indeed the case. But even after that, I mean, there's still, right, there's still, what, like 11 weeks between the election and, and, and the end, or not, they're like nine weeks sure. between the election. Yeah, and right. So, so then that's the more realistic scenario is probably that it does eventually bubble up by then. Um, I think in the end, the Hipsy subpoena gets, you know, affirmed as legitimate and then it gets executed and who knows. Right. 
I, I think we're all assuming here that unlike the grand jury subpoena, the Hipsy subpoena, that the contents and the fruits are going to leak if indeed there's leak worthy things there as, as many people assume there will but, be. Uh, yeah. Do you think it's right that it's obvious that it will leak and leak quickly? Um, I don't think it's obvious it will leak and leak quickly. I think some of it depends, Bobby, on what's in it, right? That, that the, the juicier the contents, the, 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 that, that the, 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 the odds of a leak are directly proportional to the, the inculpatoriness of what's in there. Um, but I will just say, I, I think if I can step back for a second, if, you know, again, if we can de-Trump this for a second, um, it seems to me that if you take the broader principle, the broader lesson of the Roberts opinion, which is that courts are going to resolve these disputes and here are the sort of considerations that should govern. Congress's real institutional goal going forward, Bobby, ought to be preventing subpoena recipients from engaging in the same kinds of dilatory run out the clock tactics, right? And so it seems like if Congress really wants to put teeth into yesterday's ruling, it really ought to expressly create um, a fast track judicial review procedure. I was gonna, I'm so glad you said that. I was, my whole thing I wanted to kind of culminate with was, yeah. why don't we have some sort of uh, legislation because there, there's lots of legislation needed to address various problems that have been identified in the past four years. Um, and I think one mechanism is when it comes to congressional subpoenas or, and maybe more than that, yeah. um, why not either the classic sort of three judge original jurisdiction panel with immediate appeal as of right to the Supreme Court or something like that? Or maybe you don't want three judges, maybe it's just one. What, what do you, or do you vest review originally in the DC circuit and then have it go up from there on a mandatory short-term timeline? So I've, I've now asked a variation of this question on two of my last three federal courts exams. Um, and I think, I think there are lots of ways to do it, Bobby. I, I don't think there's one perfect way. Um, I really like the three judge district court idea. Um, because then you don't actually have to have a special statute for appeal of the Supreme court. It's just, it would right. fall within the scope of, uh, eight USC, uh, 28 USC 1253, yeah. which is a mandatory appeal of the Supreme court. And just for the folks who don't do this every day, um, appeals from three judge district courts are the last vestige of the Supreme Court's so-called mandatory appellate jurisdiction, meaning appeals it has to hear, as opposed to its discretionary certiorari docket where it chooses the appeals it wants to hear. Um, and so I would do it, Bobby, in a three judicial court, but even more, I would actually create very strict time limits yes. yeah, for I the agree. three judge, not for SCOTUS, because I am a defender of SCOTUS's constitutional prerogative to set its own rules, um, but I would set a pretty strict time limit on the three judge district court. Um, and sort of get it to a point where, you know, the case is going to be in and out of the district court in six months tops so that, Oh yeah. You know, I'd the, be more aggressive than that. Actually. I think well, I, I mean, I, I, so generous. It, it would be, I would have it as an escalator, right. Where, where the, the, the recipient of the subpoena or an interested third party has like 14 days to show up and file an objection. Right. But just to, in case Bobby, there's a need for extensive fact finding, right. I would create, I, I don't want to sort of, tie the three judge district court's hands. And so it would be really, really quick if it was just a pure question of law. But if there was a need for fact finding, I'd allow like 30 days for discovery and then 30 days for, you know, I mean, six months at the outside. Fair enough. Um, I, but the important thing is, I think you and I actually came to the same idea here, which is that there is a structural problem that goes to the inherent and well-known and always true inefficiency of resolving things via litigation. That's just part of what comes with the territory, but it's not like you can't 
and that we don't ever grease the pole so it moves faster. Right. It can't be done. There's actually, as you say, there's an existing mechanism for circumstances of similar magnitude. Yep. This seems like an obvious case for ensuring that when this fact pattern repeats itself, then rest assured, uh, given the stakes, why wouldn't it? Yep. Um, that, that a different and more timely uh, process could be used. And, and to be fair, I mean, and, and I think the, what, what I hope is clear from this is this kind of process would not prejudge the merits, Bobby, of any of these disputes. Uh, it, it, it does not erode right. the privilege. It ensures we get a quicker answer. Right. And so all it does is it makes it harder for a subpoena recipient to win by delaying, right? That, that if you're going to win, you're going to win on the merits. Mm-hmm. That's um, right. All right. So, so that to me is the sort of the, the, the cash out implications of this decision. And it's, I think it's up to Congress to really, you know, put some real teeth into it. Um, we should talk for a minute about what this is also going to do to the other pending cases that we're waiting for this decision. And um, perhaps the biggest one of those is uh, the Don McGahn case in the DC circuit. Right. All right. So what's, what exactly was hung up Right. Based on not knowing how this is going to turn out, that is now clear. Oh, this is hilarious. Hold on a second. I literally just got an email from a congressional staffer about proposals to expedite review of congressional subpoenas. That's weird. Um, That's they, super weird. They, they heard us talking. Um, exactly. So, Wait a minute. Who's listening? So the, so the um, or they just read my Twitter account. Um, so the, the, uh, the Don McGahn case, this is the House Judiciary Committee's subpoena to McGahn. Um, and the, this is the case where the three-judge panel of the D.C. Circuit had ruled, gosh, in February, Bobby? I, I can't yeah, remember. Something like that. Um, that this dispute was just not justiciable at all. Um, and then the D.C. Circuit had quite quickly agreed to rehear that on Bonk and had heard oral argument on Bonk, I want to say at the end of April, Bobby. Um, but I think everyone assumed was waiting for a dis- to issue a decision until the Supreme Court decided Mazars. And one of the things the Supreme Court had done in the Mazars case is it had asked for supplemental briefing, Bobby, on the exact issue that Griffith had decided, which is, are these disputes just generally not justiciable? Um, And one of the things that's fascinating about the Roberts opinion in Mazars is he says literally nary a word about that (laughs) while while justicing the dispute. Um, right. He, so, he says it in the most eloquent way possible by doing. Right. So I think if I'm the en banc majority of the D.C. Circuit, I was probably already going to hold that these disputes are justiciable. But Mazars, I think, seals the deal. Yeah, I think it compels that result. Right. And so then the question is, what about the merits? And the merits was McGann's claim of absolute testimonial immunity. Um, the, in the panel, Judge Henderson, who joined the non-justiciability holding, already signaled that she thinks the merits argument is a loser. Um, and I think the Vance decision, Bobby, goes even further to explain why this is a loser, because in rejecting the president's claim of absolute immunity from the New York subpoena, there's a lot in there that would apply a fortiori right to McGahn. So I think it's now pretty likely that the en banc DC circuit's going to hold, one, that the McGahn dispute is justiciable, and two, that at least his immunity claim is a loser, right? Mm-hmm. And then perhaps remand the case to the district court in case McGann has more specific like privilege objections as opposed to just a general immunity claim. Right, so it ends up following the same track as the congressional subpoenas. But maybe a little slower. Um, and then there's the, and so there, again, there's the question of whether that will just expire in January. 
Um, and then there's the, oh gosh, um, there's the lawsuit, there's the House, is it the Financial Services Committee that's suing Secretary Mnuchin for direct turning over of the tax returns? Um, Thank you, Financial Services. Right, I think Judge McFadden was uh, waiting for the D.C. Circuit in McGann, right, which was waiting for the Supreme Court in Mazars. So that goes forward. Um, there are, um, there's litigation before Judge Moss in D.C. over subpoenas for census-related documents that was held up over this whole, like, well, what do, you know, what do we do with congressional subpoenas? Um, so there are four or five cases now where the clock starts running and where I think yesterday's decision really helps Congress, Bobby, because now there's a standard. Now it's clear the courts right. can r- resolve this. And we're, I think everything's just going to rise and fall on whether we run out of time. That, I think that's completely right. I think really the action over time ends up being in the new Congress that convenes in 2021. Yep. And it's interesting if they are organized enough, if they have a friend in the White House who's willing to sign this legislation, some aspects of this probably, the the order of operations probably should be modifying the the judicial process through which these challenges are going to get litigated, then getting properly documented subpoenas. And of course, this is a little bit like federal legislation that's... um, based on interstate commerce regulatory authority where there's a, there's a price to being lazy in how Congress describes and writes into the statute what it's doing or writes in, in this case, to its subpoenas what it's doing. There's now a roadmap in the form of these decisions and Congress would be well advised to make sure that they expressly check the boxes both uh, formally and, and substantively from now on so that the record is as clean as possible on a quick review process because uh, it's all going to get litigated each time now, at least as far as, um, well, actually it gets interesting, right? Because if we assume that Biden administration is in there, there's another sea change, right? Suddenly the, uh, the keepers of documentation in the executive branch to some extent suddenly are going to be much friendlier and perfectly happy to cooperate with some of these requests. Um, so I guess that will modify things as well. Yep. All right. Um, Quickly now, we've got Oklahoma. We've well, got do, also Mike do, Flynn. You want to do Oklahoma first? Let's do Flynn first because I think that's 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 Trumplandia. That's still in the Trumplandia vein. Right. So as expected, uh, Judge Sullivan's not done. <laughs> um, so I, I, yes. So yesterday, uh, Judge Sullivan, in his capacity as the respondent to the emergency mandamus petition by Mike Flynn, um, filed a petition for rehearing on Bonk in the D.C. Circuit of the three-judge uh, panel decision that had granted, the divided three-judge panel decision uh, from late June that had granted the petition for mandamus. Um, I think the, there are only really two things to flag here, Bobby. The first is, you know, all of the, I, as I said before, like nothing brings out the wackos on Twitter quite like anything about Mike Flynn. Um, <laughs> and, and the wackos really came out yesterday about how, Judge Sullivan is acting unethically and he's not allowed to file a petition for rehearing on Bonk and blah, blah, blah. And all I want to say is, you know what, guys, just stop. Um, the, <laughs> in general, it is true that a judge is not allowed to have a role in the appeal of a case he's involved in. Two things, however, make the situation different. One, this is not an appeal. It's a petition for a mandamus, which, better or worse, is not an appeal. It's a standalone action. And two, the three-judge panel, Bobby, made Sullivan a party when it ordered him to respond. Um, 
And so under federal rule of appellate procedure 21, right, he becomes a, I mean, he's not a party in the classical sense, but he is, he has an interest in the litigation in a way that allows him, I think, to seek rehearing on bonk. And even if he didn't, the court could do it on its own. So I think all of this effort to try to portray this as an improper, lawless, unethical move by Judge Sullivan um, is nuts. Um, yeah, I think it's right. On the merits, um, you know, I think it's an interesting question whether the court's going to agree. I mean, I think, so there are 11 active judges. That means Judge Sullivan will need six votes to take this on bonk. Um, Bobby, I have a very easy time counting the four um, judges who I think are going to have lots of problems with the panel decision. Um, I think it really comes down to three judges. I think it comes down to Chief Judge Srinivasan, who wrote the panel precedent on which the Flynn panel purported to rely. And so I think has a pretty good idea of what he meant. I think it's going to come down to Judge Garland, um, who wholly, long before he was a, a, um, a familiar name to everybody, was often the sort of median, you know, centrist vote on that court, um, and Judge Millett. And I think, you know, if Sullivan can get two of those three, or all three, this goes on bonk. But he need, that's, that's where I think the rubber's going to hit the road. Right, interesting. So it's a little hard to predict. It sounds like probably yes, but hard to know. I mean, I don't, I don't bet on these things. Um, I would put the odds at slightly better than even, but, but maybe only slightly. Um, right? And, and I think part of that's not necessarily because the, the, all those judges agree with the panel, but because they might be sort of at least somewhat ill-inclined to expend capital when everyone understands how this is going to end, right? That, you know, one way or the other, Mike Flynn's not, you know, Flynn's getting off somehow, some way, right? I think the question is, you know, how much are they going to stand on, on sort of proceed, regular order? There is uh, such a difference in the perceived legitimacy of his past conduct if he gets off ultimately only because Donald Trump gives him a pardon. Um, well, we'll see. Um, okay. So, you know, good times. All right. Um, and then what else? What else? What else? We'll get Oklahoma. 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 Right. And when a territory is a state. Um, right, can you, can you encapsulate for me? What, <laughs> what the hell's going on? Yeah. Well, just what exactly is the, what most interesting thing can be said here about any larger principles at work? It's obviously super important and interesting as to the applied facts, but I'm interested in what the larger sort of spillover uh, implications might be. So I, I think, all right, well, so, so let me start with what actually happened, and then I, and I, but, I, but don't let me off the hook on the larger implications question. Okay. Um, so this is a case that actually came to the Supreme Court for the first time two and a half years ago, um, and the court split four to four without Justice Gorsuch, who had not yet been confirmed when it was argued. Um, and so... But, but also, Bobby, there was a problem that Gorsuch would have had to recuse from the case they had anyway because it was a Tenth Circuit case right. from when right. he was on the Tenth Circuit. This is the same issue, but in a direct appeal from the state court in Oklahoma, right? So, so same question, but without Gorsuch recusal. Um, and what it basically boils down to is um, there is a federal statute called the Major Crimes Act, which basically provides that um, states lack the power to prosecute um, members of Native American tribes for, a, for, for serious offenses, Bobby, committed on uh, or in what the statute calls Indian country. Um, so on, you know, reservation land, um, 
right, that the Major Crimes Act prevents states from prosecuting that. Um, McGirt, right, the defendant in this case, was prosecuted by Oklahoma. Um, he is a member of, I want to say the Muscogee, he's a Creek or Muscogee? Anyway, he's right. He, the, everything rises and falls on whether um, the Major Crimes Act applies, that is to say whether where his crime was committed was part of Indian country. And his argument, Bobby, that it was, would recognize basically a third of Oklahoma, like much of eastern Oklahoma, including most of the city of Tulsa, um, as Indian country, and therefore not subject to the criminal jurisdiction of the state of Oklahoma, at least for major crimes. Um, okay. The Supreme Court, in a five to four opinion written by Justice Gorsuch and joined by the four more progressive justices, sides with McGirt and says, yep, this is Indian country. <laughs> um, and therefore, Oklahoma, the state, cannot prosecute major crimes committed in Indian country. Um, that is a stunning decision sort of optically, Bobby, because it's basically saying like a much larger chunk of Oklahoma is still technically Native American territory than you might have thought. Um, what's not immediately clear from Gorsuch's opinion is what that means for non-criminal cases, right? Like, does Oklahoma still have civil jurisdiction? Right, right. Well, yeah, who, who are the governments in the various counties and towns and so forth that did not perceive themselves as yes. under uh, the, the Muskogee governor? By the way, the Muskogee, as I understand it, that there's there was historically the larger Creek Confederacy yes. of tribes, Muskogee being yes. uh, a, a Creek tribe and, and recognized as one of the recognized nations. That's right. I think that's right. And I, and I apologize if I'm getting any of the history wrong. And indeed, one of my favorite things about the, the dueling opinions is one of the arguments Oklahoma had made, Bobby, is that the promises Congress made to the Creek tribe were abrogated when the Creek tribe uh, allied with the Confederacy in the Civil War. <laughs> um, <laughs> Right. I'm, I'm definitely going to go read this based just on that. That's fascinating. And so, yeah, well, interesting question. Why didn't that argument uh, prevail? Because there was a new treaty in 1866. Um, ah, that, well, so, are they even talking about the old treaty? Well, so Gorsuch, I mean, it's, so, so, you know, there was a lot of mockery of Justice Gorsuch's writing style, his first term on the court, the hashtag Gorsuch style. Um, yeah. I actually think this is one of his better written opinions. Um, it, it has some of his flourishes, but not his smarminess. And so I think it's actually, it's a fun read. I would encourage folks to go read this one for themselves. Um, the broader implications. So um, my, my dear friend Ezra Rosser um, and former colleague from American um, who taught Native American law um, had a, a pity saying that the, the, the first rule of Indian law in the Supreme Court is the Indian loses. <laughs> um, and, and that just hasn't been true since Justice Gorsuch joined the court. That I think, you know, there's the one area where I think there's now five solidly, you know, sympathetic votes um, where, where, where it's Gorsuch and the lefties um, is Native American issues. So I think it has two different sets of implications, Bobby. One is there's now going to be a mess to figure out on the ground in Oklahoma about who has control over what and which law applies to which kinds of cases. Um, but two, Bobby, I think this also is going to embolden and empower um, similar litigation by tribes who believe that their rights have been under-enforced, um, that their treaty and statutory rights have been under-enforced. I think they're now gonna look at the Supreme Court and see five votes for claims that as recently as five years ago, they might not have. 
Absolutely. Now, so many interesting questions here. One, what do you think it is about Gorsuch? Is it his, is it his textualism? And, and there's, there's hints of this in what he yeah. wrote in Gert. Uh, is it his experience in, in relatively nearby parts of the country and sort of unlike, for example, people who mostly, you know, aren't in these areas, does, does he have some personal experience with spending time in or around these areas? So he maybe has more of a visceral understanding of the reality of tribal sovereignty, some combination of these things, any, any clues? Um, I think, I think it's a combination of both Bobby. Um, so, so on the textualism front, I, I don't just think it's his species of textualism. I also think it is his, you know, damn the consequences, uh, um, commitment in his textualism, right? That, that there are, there are avowed textualists who sometimes get scared off of their textualism because of the consequences. And right. I think, no, I, that's what, I, when I say like yeah. his textualism, I mean that he's more willing to take the words where they go, including right. true words. Let justice be done though the heavens fall. Um, so, so I think that's part of it. And, and Bobby, I think, I mean, I, I've been beating this drum for a while. I mean, I think, you know, the Supreme court is radically undiverse and woefully undiverse in any number of ways, including geographically. And, you know, Gorsuch is the only current justice um, who has spent a large chunk of his professional career not on, not on the East Coast, um, right? I think that's, you know, I think that's also part of this, that he is, you know, I don't think he's a, a frontiers man. And I don't think that he's, you know, sort of the Western environmentalist that say Justice Douglas was, um, but I do think that he has some um, strong and personal experience informed views that are unique to him, at least on the court, because of his very different professional experiences. I want to highlight the one thing that I immediately started wondering about, and, and I imagine this is going to become a font of litigation like few things we've ever seen in Oklahoma. Um, there's a lot of oil and gas in yeah. Oklahoma. I have this very loose impression that it's to some extent concentrated more westerly than easterly in Oklahoma, but I could be wrong about that. But in any event, a fair amount of it at least is in the eastern parts of Oklahoma that are affected by this uh, remarkable ruling. And I could be wrong, but I would have to assume that one effect of this ruling is that the regulatory authority that previously would have just been in key respects, Oklahoma's uh, oil and gas regulatory authority, that whatever they're equivalent to what we in Texas call the Railroad Commission, which is a quirk of <laughs> how we name things here in Texas. Um, I don't know that it's still in charge suddenly, and it could be that this is more like what happens when you want to drill on a, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Steve, I think the way we're supposed to think about uh, reservations and tribal lands is that uh, ultimately they're federal lands. Yep held in trust for the Native it, American tribes? It depends on the specific Lingering sovereignty? Right. So, some, so some, so in some cases held in trust, in some cases where Congress by statute has deeded them to the tribe, okay. right? And in some cases so where they're- the former, not the latter, probably. Right, and in some cases where they're licensed to the tribe. I mean, there, there's, there are different arrangements, but the, yes, for constitutional purposes, the fact that it's tribal land makes it subject to federal sovereignty, not state sovereignty. Right. So big tax consequences and therefore yep. budgetary consequences probably for Oklahoma yep. as well. A lot of states, I, I'm sure Oklahoma is like Texas in this respect, uh, 
state revenue related to production on their land. Yep. Um, I have to assume this, this really means that maybe the state doesn't get that. Maybe the Muskogee get it instead. Well, wow. and I think, and I think there's a, and I think it, it radically increases Congress's responsibility for addressing some of these questions. Right. Uh, of course, uh, there, I, I assume that a fair amount of fracking goes on that maybe is treated indeed. differently in the eyes of Oklahoma regulators versus whoever now would be in charge. And, and frankly, and Bobby, I'm sure that the federal statutes already have lots of provisions for stuff on tribal land because this is not, you know, there's plenty no, of- not land. a new situation. No, right. right. Um, I think the question is whether how, how the sort of substitution of the federal regulatory regime for the state regime implicates the, you know, all of these sort of revenue and operational considerations. Um, that's going to be, I mean, one of the things that Chief Justice Roberts pointed out in his dissent was, you know, this is going to create a lot of fallout. We don't know. We can't even begin to imagine what it's going to do. Um, you know, Gorsuch says, you know, c'est la vie. Um, the one, one really funny quirk, though. So Bobby McGirt, which was, you know, the, what, the third to last decision of the term, but it'll, it'll actually appear in the U.S. reports as the last decision of the term because Gorsuch wrote it, um, is the first decision all term where the court's 5-4 or 5-3 and Roberts was in the dissent. <laughs> oh, that is interesting. And he really, this will certainly be a term that is characterized, all, all the encomiums that will follow in afterwards to describe what went on this term, no doubt will have as major themes, you know, the year that Roberts really took control of the court and made it his court, et cetera. Um, you had some of that before, but I think you'll see that as the uh, the sort of the obvious character. You know, this is this on. is. I mean, I mean, McGirt is the exception that proves the rule. This is John Roberts' court, and you know, it's it's too much to say it's therefore his country, but it is it is his it, 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 it is his court, and it and that means it is his court probably for some time to come. This is John Roberts' podcast too. Maybe that could be a show title. <laughs> Um, or so, so I, mean, I, I wrote, I wrote yesterday, right. That, that, you know, lots of folks are going to sort of be trying to count up the, the winners and the losers from this term. And I, I don't really know who lost the term, but it's pretty clear to me that John Roberts won. Um, and, and I mean that in the sense, Bobby, not just of his remarkable statistics of being in the majority. I mean, he only is in the dissent twice and only once in a closely divided case. Um, he writes the majority opinions in what six of the seven biggest cases of the term. Um, but also, Bobby, this is you know it's his term. He won the term in the sense that this is the court doing what he wants it to be doing. Yeah, that's right. And I think you see, it, it's kind of funny when you watch the the shows or some of the non lawyer commentary. People trying to figure out like you know why why is this not therefore resulting just in wins for the Trump administration? Why did Kavanaugh and Gorsuch vote a certain way? It's, it's always shocking to people to find that, in fact, uh, party of appointment doesn't necessarily dictate the outcome across the board in case after case. And, and indeed, and I think a big part of why, especially in Mazars, there was no separate concurrence from the lefties, right, was because Kavanaugh and Gorsuch were on board, right? Oh, that I completely agree with that. We should have brought that out before. I have little doubt that there were at least some of the progressive justices who would like to have taken a harder line. Uh, especially and- in Mazars. Absolutely. And very much held their fire as part of the larger institutional commitment. And, and I know that often leads to sort of people wondering like, oh, so what, so what's really the law then? The law is the, in a multi-member court, the law yep. is the product of negotiations like this. Yep. All that's the, exactly right. as it's meant to be. And, and, and for folks who think that that somehow diminishes its content, I actually, you know, I, I, I think demands for, for, 
for sort of individualistic purity are unrealistic in a multi-member body, right? And, and I, I would say go further and say undesirable. That yes. one of the one of the reasons why not just have one person in charge will get maximum clarity. Well, and or or why not have seriatim opinions, which you know, as as the Supreme Court did for its first decade, where every justice writes separately. And no, the answer is, I'm sorry. No, please. No, and the answer is because having one opinion that speaks for the court has enormous value in settling the law and in providing guidance to lower courts and interested parties, even if the, the cost of that is compromised, anal compromised analysis as opposed to, you know, one justice, one justice's purity. I think it's right. And it means by extension that since the court ultimately, its power flows from acceptance yep. of what it does and does, the, the more it can speak with one voice and you get there by compromise, yep. uh, the more effective it is. And at the end of the day, inst judicial institutionalists, uh, the chief being a, a, a paradigm example, um, are going to find that to be the very definition of a win. And, and, and if anything, I mean, this was, this was a term for judicial institutionalists. It was a term for judicial supremacists. And I think it's going to say a lot that um, progressives are going to be unhappy with the religion decisions. Conservatives are going to be unhappy with the LGBT and abortion and DACA decisions. But no one is walking away from this term screaming at the court for overextending itself. I, I think that both sides will have some who will do that, but be, only, by, only by narrowly focusing right. on the part right. that, that matters to them where they lost and viewing the part where they won as like, well, that, of course, was perfectly objectively defensible. But that's the point, that, that yeah. everyone got enough out of this term that no one's response is, you know, sort of to turn their back on the court entirely. And so John Roberts can go enjoy the rest of his summer feeling, patting himself on the back for what uh, is indeed, I would think, a, a job well done. So, uh, I, I, yes, I, I, I can't resist saying I have some real long-term concerns about the religion decisions, but, but you know, live It's hard, it's hard not to feel that it proves the point, right? Well, no, right. So, so, so my concerns are not that the court asserted itself, right? My concern is how the court asserted itself. And that's, and, and that is for me, especially Bobby, that is so often like, it is very rare for me to point to a decision where I think the court should have stayed out. Right. But like the, you know, I have, I am very much a judicial maximalist. And so I am not offended by the maximalism as such. The question is, what are you doing with it? Yep. All right. Um, I think that's it for substance. Should we do some quick should we be frivolous for a little? It's going to have to be super quick, but uh, let's definitely do it because we must be frivolous. Um, so really so quickly, ha about... Hamilton the movie, what did you think? Okay, so I mean, you know, having, having seen the show live, it was... Were, were, it was were, you, really... were you satisfied? <laughs> I'm never satisfied. No, I think that um, I, you get something really wonderful, unless you're so fortunate as to having seen it from great seats, from several different angles live. You could never actually match the, the varied perspectives and especially the the uh, really exquisite couple of moments where they, they shot the camera from the back of stage going out to the crowd, like when, when the king yep. comes out. Yep. So you got to have a bunch of vantage points you could never otherwise have. I thought that was fantastic. I actually hadn't seen the original Broadway cast version. You know, that was wonderful too. Um, I think that I have so much more appreciation for, for Odom's, physicality and choreography like a number of these amazing performers aren't necessarily great dancers or at least don't 
dance a lot in the role. Hamilton's not heavy on dance or, or clever choreography. It's got some of that, but not a lot. But there are moments, especially with Room Where It Happened, Room Where It Happens, that um, I just was blown away by his ability. I already knew he was a great singer and, and he emoted so effectively, but what he was doing physically was really cool to see. Um, there's a particular moment where he he sprints in a sort of an inward leaning circle where you just think he's going to fall down. And, and it's, it's just an amazing choreography. Really good to see that. Yeah. I mean, I, so I loved, I loved the chance to really appreciate the choreography. I mean, I've, you know, I saw it on Broadway with the original cast and I saw it in Austin. Right. So I've seen, so, so, and, and, and I had, I knew the soundtrack before I saw it. So I was able to do more of the visuals when I saw it. Um, I, I thought, I have one critique and I wonder if you share it of an otherwise fantastic, you know, experience. And I love that, you know, putting it on Disney plus allows so many people who don't have the opportunity to see it in person to see it. Here's my one critique. I wish they would have just sort of um, sucked it up and filmed it in an empty theater so that they could have done more with camera angles. Like, yes, there were some, there were a couple of cool camera angles, but it's pretty clear that at least some of the production values were constrained by filming it in front of a full house, right? That, that there was only so much they could do without interfering with the sort of, you know, in-person experience of the folks who were in the theater. Um, and so it felt in many ways, you know, I mean, I, I can count on one hand the number of shots that I thought were really dramatic, like, you know, the one behind King George, the one behind George Washington when he comes out. Like, there wasn't enough of that, and there weren't enough different angles, Bobby, to me. And I, I suspect that was a function of, you know, filming it while it was being performed to a live audience. Um, I, I wonder if they could have done more if they had done, you know, a sort of a performance to a virtually empty house with more cameras. Um, I'm sure there are reasons why they didn't. I don't mean to criticize. It's just that it was, I think, the one limitation of the movie to me was that I actually thought there weren't as many different camera angles as there could have been from a full-on, a full-fledged production. That's interesting. Well, I, I think that all things being equal, that would be awesome. I, I suspect that the actors, as great as they are, could not generate the same degree yeah, of, of energy. Of energy. Yeah. But I want to amplify what you said, which is, you know, I have always loved almost everyone's performance in, in the play. Um, when you actually, what, what the movie drives home in a way that the play never did to me in person is how stunning Leslie Odom's physical performance is. Not just the, not just his singing and his dancing, but he is, I mean, he has the most stage time. He has the most lines. He has the most complicated, you know, choreography and sort of performance obligations. And he's just, and, and he just exudes energy from, you know, the very first line of the play, which is his, right, mm -hmm. to, you know, the finale, which is in which he's such a, you know, in which he, he sort of, it's, which starts with him, right? So, so I just, I, you know. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh he uh, his his ability to he just conveys this anguish the yes. haunting anguish that yes. the Amber portrayed in the show uh, yep. suffers from in a way that's just steam sealing uh i also think that you as as amazing as he is to listen to you really can't appreciate the full accomplishment of the two roles that Dovey Diggs yep. forms if you don't see yep. the, the the distinct physical personas that he displays as Lafayette 
in oh, Jefferson. Not, his, not, just, not just the physical personas, his facial expressions. Yeah. Like, oh, absolutely. Especially as Jefferson. I mean, yeah. he's, he's, there's so much hilarious comedy in how he, how he moves yep. this like weird hitch and lean that he's got the entire time yep. that is yep. Jefferson. Yep. yep. The faces he makes and just the, Oh, everything about that was, but, uh, but I had not appreciated his facial expressions until I saw the movie. So, so that's, um, and also uh, you may recall my review of the musical when I saw it in person the first time is I was underwhelmed by Philip Sue. Um, I, I now officially retract my underwhelmedness because there, good. Um, at, at least in the movie version, she really is exceptional. Maybe she might've just had an off night, you know, the night that we were there. Yeah. Um, that could be. but, um, you know, I, I at, when I saw the play the first time I was blown away, pun intended, um, by Renee Elise Goldberry. And now I'm just, I'm just in awe of Leslie Odom Jr. Yeah. It's, a. Uh... I forget the name of the actress who plays Peggy uh, slash Mariah Reynolds. Uh, 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 Jasmine, Jasmine Cephas Jones. Okay. So, so she obviously is not given a lot to work with in the Peggy role, but uh, she, she kills it in the, in the limited yep. bit she gets as yep. Mariah Reynolds. Also there's, yeah, we can go on like this, but yeah, I realize I've got All right. We'll save, we'll save our discussion of the pendant collapse of all sports for next week. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, I know the players started arriving in Disney. I'm watching my Spurs accounts and seeing shots of uh, hotel rooms and such. I just really, last, last line before we stop. What is the um, if if I gave you um, odds of one in ten that the NBA will actually play a game that counts? Would you take that? Oh, yeah, I, they're I think they're totally going to play games that count. It's much harder to imagine that they'll really be able to run the traps all the way through. Um, all right. So what? So what do you put? So what? What are the what are the odds that the NBA that the NBA has a championship series, has a finals? Forty percent. I'm taking the under. Yeah. I, okay. That's it then. All right. Uh, all right. He is at Bobby Tesley. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Please stay safe out there. Wash your hands. Wear a mask. Adios.